We got Bill Parker to come and pray for me before we jump. And is he here? He's over there. Bill, you got to sit in the same place every week, just like a good Baptist. So, Father, before Paul preaches today, we ask uh, you to bless him. Uh, he does so much for this church, God, by, by your hand, by your power, by your might. So I pray that you will use him today to speak to us by that same power and might. Give him uh, clarity of mind. Give him strength. Give him courage, God, to preach what you have him to say. God, we love you so. We love this man and ask you to bless him today and bless us through him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Psalm again, thank you so much for coming and blessing us. Um, just one, one more chance for them. Proof that God's favorite college is UNC. He likes state, too. So if you turn with me to Mark 4, 35 through 41, and, and I want to go ahead and say this right off the bat. If you, if you think to yourself, you're like, hey, I've heard that before, or I've heard the scripture before, consider, you know, that this, these texts that are so familiar to us have deep things going on in them. And so we want to, even though we may have heard this, or you, uh, you, could, you could tell me the gist of this right off the bat, um, we pray that the Holy Spirit would just move and work, and that we would hear it maybe anew and afresh, and uh, something, might be, something might be different and more applicable for us today. So Psalm, I mean, excuse me, Mark 4, 35 through 41, starting with verse 35. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. He was already in the boat, so they started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm arose, and high waves began to break into the boat until it was nearly full of water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. Frantically, they woke him up shouting, teacher, don't you even care that we're going to drown? When he woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the water, quiet down. Suddenly, the wind stopped and there was a great calm. And he asked them, why are you so afraid? Do you not still have faith in me? Do you still not have faith in me? And they were filled with awe and said among themselves, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Now, when I was a, you know, I was a junior in high school, um, began to run cross-country um, one of the sports I did in high school, even though cross country is not a sport, I love it, but anything that you'd have to run and that's it, there's no ball involved, it's just, that's just punishment. Um, but ran cross country and so about a week into the practice, the, the uh, exchange students got to Broughton High School, where I went to Broughton, not the mental institute. When you tell people you went to Broughton, they go, when did you get out? And so you're like, um, so I went to Broughton, and, uh, and so the exchange students got there, and, and they got there, and we got a guy that was a Japanese exchange student who was going to run cross country with us. And y'all, he was as Japanese as it gets. We had to tell him to like stop bowing to us, like he would just bow, and you know, it is very choppy English, but he was so excited about life, and he's like, I'm here to run cross country with you guys. And he says, I'm not a cross country runner, I'm a track runner, but I'll run cross country with you. Now, if you've ever seen the movie Forrest Gump, the first time Forrest gets the ball in the University of Alabama game, he runs, and he runs like this for just out the stadium. But then when one day he said, one day for no reason, I decided I would run. Same thing. He just pumps his arms, and at full breakneck speed, he goes. And so in the first meet, we're running against another high, uh, high school in Raleigh called Athens Drive. And so the starter's gun goes off, and Akio Harada Akio just goes flying off, and we're like, well, we'll see him at the mile marker because he's not going to be able to sustain this. 
he blazes that thing for 3.2 miles for 5K. And then just like Forrest Gump, he's waiting for us at the finish line like, and we're like dying, and he's coming across, and he's just like, I ran a really good race. And we're like, yeah, you did. He ran several sub-16-minute 5Ks. All conference, all state, went to the state meet. I don't know how he did, because I was not anywhere near making it to the state meet. But just amazing. And so we're like, what's this guy going to do when he gets to track? It's going to be amazing. The problem is, he'd never run track against Americans. And so we get up there, and I'm up here on the top of the stands at the first track meet. I'm playing a different sport at the time, so I'm up at the top of the stands watching them. And the starter gun goes off. Akio is being lapped by people. And there was no, like, waving in the finish line. He was, like, you know, at the end of it, he was doing just like I did, like, (sighs) and we're like, well, how could you be so dominant over here and so just absolutely getting crushed over here? That's where we find Jesus in this text except for the fact that there is no event or no place or no thing or no time where Jesus is not absolutely dominant, where he is not absolutely in charge, where he's not absolutely Lord. There is no, this is Jesus' best event, that's his not so, it's, he's Lord, period. Doesn't matter where you put him, he's in charge, he's Lord, he's sovereign, he's God, especially in the middle of a storm. Now, it is romantic and sentimental to turn this into some kind of like precious moments doll figuring with a thing that says, Jesus calms the storms in your life. That's not what this is about. This text is about Jesus literally speaks to nature and says, shut up, and it cuts off. This is literally about God who is almighty and all-powerful is the one who can change the world simply by his voice. That's what this text is about, the power of who Jesus Christ is. So let's jump into the text and let's look at verse 35. Verse 35 tells us, the same day, now this is the same day, so Jesus during that same day had been teaching about faith, and so it says on the same day, same day Jesus had been teaching about faith, if you look back in Mark chapter 4, he'd been teaching about the faith in terms of the parable of the sower, he'd been teaching about faith in terms of the way the seed grows, he's teaching about faith in the mustard seed, and on the mustard seed it's tiny, but like faith that grows up and is bigger, teaching about faith in the way that you don't put faith underneath something, but you let it shine out before all men, he has been teaching about faith, and so even if you ask Bartholomew, who was the dumbest disciple, I don't really know that, his name is just Bartholomew. But anyway, he would have been like, I think Jesus talked about faith today. And you'd be like, all right, good job, party. But Jesus then says, after all that teaching about faith, he says, now listen, I'm telling you, follow me. We are going to go to the other side of the lake. So Jesus commands it. He tells them where the destination is, and he says, let's go. And so he's the reason why they get into the storm, and the disciples obey, and they get in the storm. That will be more important later on. Jesus tells the exact destination. Now, verse 36 reminds us he was already in the boat. Now, what you need to realize is that Jesus, when a lot of crowds would come and they're pressing in on him as crowds do, he got in the boat, pulled a little away from shore, used the water as kind of a natural amplifier for his voice, and began to speak to the people and then taught them. And so he's already in the boat, and he's on the Jewish side of the lake, and he's going to go to the eastern side of the lake, which is the Gentile side of the lake. So he goes, and then it says that several other boats kind of go with him. Now, that's not really necessarily important, but... When we get to this part about verse 37 and this whole idea of then soon a fierce storm came up, let me tell you a little bit about this boat. A typical Galilee, Sea of Galilee fishing boat would be about 27 feet long. It'd be seven and a half feet wide, and it'd be four feet tall. 
So it's not like a massive like yacht or anything. It's just like what you think about when you think about an old fishing boat and what that would look like. And the storms would come up, and the storms were common. Now, I grew up on Lake Gaston, which is the eastern part of the state. Some of y'all grew up on Lake Hickory. Some of you grew up on Lake Norma. If you've grown up on, on lakes like this, we don't have storms the way that they would because the storm that would come up in the Sea of Galilee would come because the Sea of Galilee was surrounded by mountains. And so just like how when a storm hits Grandfather Mountain, it will dump snow and then it will blow snow over because that mountain produces weather. Well, that height of those mountains, the cold air would come over the top of the mountain and then go down, hit the warm air, and cause there to be a massive disturbance. And then there would be a literal windstorm and wave storm where you could be knocked out of your boat or the boat could be swamped. And so... In verse 38, we see that Jesus must have an incredible, <laughs> wonderful gift of sleep, which I'm super jealous of. But your boy is sleeping in the boat, and then the boat, and then it says, the water is literally about to swamp the boat. Jesus is floating in the water on this thing in the back of the boat, still asleep. Now, whenever we think about doctrine and we say Jesus is not 50% God or 50% man, Jesus is not 75% God, 25% man, but that Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. And people say, where is that in the Bible? Where is the verse that says that? You could take them to this and say, look, he's asleep. He's 100% man. He's been teaching all day long. He's 100% man. He's asleep in the storm. Do you know what that tells me? You know who falls asleep in the middle of the storm? People that know that the storm is no threat because they are more of a threat than the storm is. He's God. So he's both man and completely God and in completely at peace, just like it says in Psalm 4, I laid down and slept because in the midst of my enemies because you were with me and I woke up in safety. That peace that we have only from God, well, if it comes from God and God is there, then he's at peace and he's sleeping. So then in verse 38b, the pastors love to do this, notice that the disciples don't question his ability. Jesus, can you stop the waves? They don't question his ability. They question his care. Don't you care? Don't you care? So verse 39, you and I need to come to this conclusion again that Jesus is not some new iteration of God. We have this thing, well, the God of the Old Testament, eh, but now the God of the New Testament. And we don't like the God of the Old Testament. He's mean and ornery and all that kind of stuff. But we like Jesus. Forget that. The triune, eternal God has been around for around. He's He's eternal. So it's not something like Jesus wasn't there in the Old Testament. So when you go back to Genesis 1, the same voice when God says, let there be light, that's Jesus. He is the living word of God. And so now that same voice says, stop, shut up. I love the way Kevin uh, DeYoung put it. He said, it's imagine like you're up in, the, uh, up in your high-rise um, office building and you hear the car alarm going off and it's like, and the person that owns the car just goes, and it stops. Well, the owner of the weather says, stop, stop, be still, stop. But then he comes back to him and he says, now listen, this, this, this same voice of God speaks to that which is earless. But because he's creator, it responds. In verse 40, then Jesus' question back to the disciples is a twofold question. It's a twofold question. So one, before we get into the twofold part, Jesus is juxtaposing two things, cowardice and awe. Both are kinds of fear. I'm just in awe of you. Oh, my gosh. Cowardice is, oh, my gosh. And he says, you're being cowards because you're not in awe of me. You're being cowards because you're not in awe of me. And he says, listen, he says, haven't you seen the evidence of who I am and what I can do? Now, remember, they've been there. Jesus has been healing the paralytics, healing the blind, delivering people from demons. They've seen the power of the kingdom of God coming in Christ. 
But then all day long they've heard him. Faith, 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 faith. And he's like, did you miss it? And then in verse 41, it's only after they see him do it, only after that the disciples back up and they have awe. And they go, who is this? Who is this? It's better as a statement to say, this is the one who calms the wind and the waves and the sea. This is the one that the wind and the waves go, whoa, whatever you say, we're doing. And it's a little bit like what when, when C.S. Lewis is trying to describe Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and someone says, is, is, he, is he a good lion? Is he good? And he says, yes, he's good, but he's not tame. So this one that is so good is not tame. So I've got two quick points for you today. First is this. Because Jesus is Lord, he's Lord, he's in charge, he's God. Lord literally means there's no place where he is not in charge at that time, always, and forever. Because Jesus is Lord, the storm is part of his plan. Because Jesus is Lord, the storm is part of his plan. And so if you look at verse 35, again, the evening, as evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. Whose idea was it to cross the lake? Jesus. Who obeyed Jesus? The disciples. So if you put two and two together, the disciples got into a massive storm by obeying Jesus. Whoa, hold on. You mean that you can obey Jesus and still come into a storm? Yes, because Jesus is Lord, and the purpose of the storm is up to the Lord of the storm, and guess who the Lord of the storm is? Jesus. He's the Lord of the storm. It's obedience that the disciples are led into the storm. And notice that the disciples don't do what the, the, the men in the boat with Jonah do. The men in the boat with Jonah, when the storm comes up, they begin to look around and go, one of us has sinned, one of us has done something wrong, who's it going to be? The disciples don't do that. They just freak out and go, Jesus, don't you care about us? Well, both are wrong. Both are wrong because it's actually obedience that has led the disciples in there, and they don't actually sit around and go, what could have caused this storm? What could have caused, how that could have caused the storm? And I've seen more Christians be paralyzed because instead of worrying about who is with them in the storm, they spend a ton of time trying to figure out why the storm happened. Sometimes, here's the problem, is if because we assume all our obedience will keep the storm from coming, we assume lordship then. Jesus, I can keep storms out of my life. If I just obey you all the time, I'll keep storms out of my life. If I obey you, I'll keep storms out of my life. The problem is when a storm comes, then you think, Jesus, do you really love me? Do you really care? Because that's what the disciples do. They obey Jesus. Their obedience leads them into a storm. And then they question, God, do you really care? Now think about the older son and the prodigal story, and the prodigal son story. The older son says, after his, you know, the storm has come. The storm came in the form of the fact that his younger brother took, all the took half the inheritance, blew it on hookers and fast living, and comes back and says, hey, can I, you know, can I come be part of the family? They say, yeah, for sure, here you come. And then the storm comes on the older brother when the younger brother is lifted up, he is celebrated, the father gives him the ring, him the cake, cape or the robe, slices open the fatted calf, begin to have a big barbecue for everyone, and here in the edge of the storm walks the older son, and he says, Dad, I can't believe you do this all my life. I have kept your commandments. I have obeyed you. I have done this for you. I've done that for you. And you never even gave us a little small goat to celebrate with. 
And you assume that when the storm comes, you go, there's no way the storm should be coming. I have crossed every T and dotted every I. There's no way a storm should come into my life. Except for when we come and we think to ourselves, because Jesus is Lord of the storm, he can send a storm for a reason, even when we're obeying him. Early on when I was a contemporary worship leader, I was a contemporary worship leader in the Southern Baptist Church in the South. That is an interesting thing. It's a little bit like being like a Ohio State person in a Michigan locker room. Like, they look at you with disdain and a little bit of bewilderment. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm walking around, I'm leading worship, and I can vividly remember one night, what had happened was we started a Thursday night worship service for our students. And so it was in this little small chapel, maybe just about this size of the size of the room, and the kids started coming, and they were coming, and it was a youth service, then all of a sudden the kids were like, their parents were like, well, can we come? And I didn't say anything to the parents. And by about the fourth week, it was full, and parents had come, and then the, youth, then the actual choir director, music director showed up. And he sat in the back of the room with a, with a pen and a pad, took the names down of every adult that was there. Not only did that happen, but then the associate pastor walked in the room. Now, this is back in the day when we had this incredible technology called overhead projectors with transparencies. Some of them were written by me, and so it looked like, you know, some form of like Star Trek, Elvish, I don't even know. People are like, are we singing, Lord, I lift your name on high, or I don't even, you know. And he comes, and we're about to strum the first chord. He walks in, grabs the overhead projector, jerks the chord out, and walks out of the room. Then when I went to go kind of kindly confront him, and I remember I'm like 25 years older, and I'm like, um, why did you take our, and he, in front of the entire fellowship hall, he says, don't you ever question what I do. What we're doing is way more important than what you're doing, and if you had wanted this, you could have reserved it, blah, 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 and I'm sitting there, and everyone's listening, and I'm blessed out, and I went home, and God, and we said, God, what am I doing that's so wrong? And the next day, I got called into the office, and they both said, if you want to do that contemporary worship, don't let the door hit you on the way out. That's the PG version of what they said to me. And I thought to myself, I, I'm, I'm obeying you, God. I'm obeying you. Why is this storm on me? I'm obeying you. And it wasn't until about the third year that I had been at Corinth, well, actually maybe the first year, the end of the first year I've been at Corinth, when we were very patient about how we started the contemporary service back in the year 2000. And I realized, you know what? It takes time for people to change. People are threatened by things that are new. People are hesitant about things that they don't understand. People want to make sure that you love them first before they're going to be willing to listen to you. And you know when I learned all those things? In the storm. I don't think I could have read a book that would have been like, here's how to be a worship leader. Number one, get cool hair and tight jeans. Number two, <laughs> be patient with people. They're stupid, you know, and it's, the book wouldn't have helped. I had to go through the storm. And so for me to assume that somehow the storm was somehow a God's punishment is to go back to what the disciples are saying. Don't you care about me? Don't you care about me? The storm is part of God's plan because as Lord, he is still greater than the storm and he has a purpose in the storm. Don't sit around trying to figure out why the storm happened. It may be an important thing. Maybe there is a sin in our life that's causing a storm. But don't wallow in that. Think more about who was in the storm with you. And I'm going to finish with this, with this point. The greatest problem that we will ever face is the unbelieving heart within us, not the storm that is around us. The greatest problem that any Christian will ever face is the unbelieving heart within them, not the storm that is without of them. 
So in verse 38, you get, you get this thing. It says, while he was sleeping in the back of the boat with his head on a cushion, frantically they woke him up shouting, Teacher, don't you even care that we're going to drown? The disciples' question resonates with us. It resonates with us. Because it's actually some of the greatest issues that we have of unbelief with Christ, which is that we don't necessarily believe that Jesus can't do it. We just believe that he won't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe you parted the Red Sea, God. Yeah, yeah, I believe that you told Lazarus to, to, to come out. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. I know that you spoke the, the universe into existence in six days. I, I get that. I get that. I just don't think that you're good enough and you'll do it for me. I, I don't think you're good enough. I don't, I don't think you're good enough. And we wouldn't say we don't think we're good enough, but what we say is that, Jesus, I know you did that, but you're not going to do it here and you're not going to do it for me. And by inference, what we're saying is, you're not good, which is the exact same thing that the disciples are saying. Don't you care? Don't you care? It's not that we don't believe that you're able to, Jesus. We just don't believe you care about us. And so then, Jesus, for the disciple, he juxtaposes those two terms. I told you before, cowardice and awe. And he says, the reason you have cowardice in this situation and you think I don't care is because you don't have awe of me. You're afraid of the situation, not because the situation is really that awful, it's because you don't see me as Lord of it all with you, in the boat with you, sleeping. I'm so at rest about this situation that I took a little nap. That's how calm I am about how amazing this is. And so the greatest question that we're ever going to struggle with is not God's ability to do something in our life, but just simply, does he literally love us? Is he really good? Unbelief isn't doubting what God can do, it's doubting that he actually really loves us. And it's doubting when he loves us when he doesn't make the storm stop. Now what did I say earlier? Who's the, who's the Lord of the storm? Jesus is the Lord of the storm. How long does the storm get to last? As long as the Lord of the storm wants to. There have been times when I was working on Lake Gaston and a storm came up and it shook everything and the next thing you know it was gone. Kind of like our snow the other day. That was a good southern snow. It snowed, and then I looked outside, and there's people surfing. You know, there's this T-shirts, and, you know. But sometimes the storm comes, and it's, 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 it's like this, you know, it rains, and then it rains, and then it rains. And I think about Noah's, Noah's flood, and he's Noah's storm, and he's like, God, don't you think it's enough? And God's like, I haven't filled up the whole earth yet. It's like your kids want to get out of the bathtub. You're like, it's not full. Get back in. So Hebrews 3.12 says this. Be careful. Because your unbelieving heart will turn you away from the living God. Jesus sleeps because he is not worried about his lordship over the storm, nor his love for the disciples. He is both that powerful and that loving. The believer in the storm is at peace, not because the storm goes away, but because he knows that Jesus will never go away. I'm going to say that one more time. The believer in the storm is not at peace because the storm goes away. The believer is at peace because he knows that Jesus, who's with him in the storm, will never go away. And so I think to myself, what did that look like for me? And there was a few years ago, uh, actually it's been over a decade, but Danielle and I made an offer on a house. Made an offer on a house, and I think, I think actually something happened, and the offer was contingent on our house selling. Well, they made us sign some like escrow thing, and there was this yada, yada, yada. Long story short, our house sale fell through, and the people were like, well, now we're taking you to court. Oh my gosh, I've never been taken to court before. What's that like? 
And so I, I don't, they're going to take us to court? Why are they going to take our children from us? Like, I don't, you can take one of them, but nope, not both of them. But anyway, how about our dog? You want our dog? Like, we'll give you that. You know, and so we go to court. We, you know, we're going to go to court. And Bob very wisely said, and I, you know, I'm fessed up to Bob. I was like, Bob, I don't know what's going on. This is an unfairly thing that's happening. I don't know what's going to go on. These, these people are taking us to court. What we're going to do? He's like, why don't you give Steve Brackett a call? Now, if you're not from Hickory, you don't, that name's not familiar to you, Steve Brackett is the daggone Terminator. He is, a, he is an attorney here in our town, and I was like, you know, Steve, he's a sweetheart. He's a sweetheart when you're on the right side of the bench with him, not even the wrong side. And so I'm on the right side, and so I'm like, hey, Steve, here's what's going on. He's like, I'll meet you at court. He was asleep in the back of the boat. He's all good. We meet Steve at court, and he's just like, hey, guys, how you doing? It's good to see you all. Come walk in with me. We walk into that court, and everybody's like, oh, snap. <laughs> Who I don't, you don't want to be across, the, oh. And then we sat down with him, and the people that were taking us to court were like, crap. <laughs> the whole case got brought up, and Steve stands up there, and he's like, reads off some legal jargon, blah, 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 to the party, the first person, e pluribus unum, you know, da, da, da. And then the, 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 the judge was just like, yeah, thrown out. And we were like, And I was like, why did I, why did I fear we had Terminator Brackett with us? I mean, he was, ah, da, 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 da. I'd be back. You know what I mean? It was amazing. <laughs> why did we fear the one who was with us in the boat was greater than the storm? The one who was with us in the boat was greater than the storm. So I don't know why the storm for you might be continuing to go on. I don't know why it hasn't stopped yet. It may not stop. But I want to look you in the eye and say the greatest problem that we have is the unbelief within us, not the storm without us, because the one that's in the boat with you is greater than the storm. And though the storm might leave or it might stay, the one who's in the boat with you will never leave you or forsake you.